Okay, it looks like everybody stopped writing here. So let's go ahead and go over this. I think we'll go through this one fairly quickly. Maybe we'll make some real progress tonight. Okay, number one. Since philosophy is the study of human thought in the absence of God, the student of theology should avoid it. False. 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 Yeah. So, yeah. When we're, if we're talking about a philosophy that is the study of human thought in the absence of God, then we should avoid it. But I don't know that that's our correct definition of philosophy. Um, we, we, in fact, we, Warfield suggested that uh, we could call it systematic philosophy because we are answering from the Christian point of view uh, the basic questions of philosophy. <clears throat> so number two, filling the blanks here. When we use the analogy of faith, we mean that since Scripture can never contradict, contradict Scripture, then we should use clear texts of Scripture to explain difficult ones. I was thinking obscure, but difficult words. So, um, so I think we, we got, that, got that one down. Then the last one. If you can't prove a theological statement with a Bible verse, you should not be dogmatic about it. False. 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 Yeah, remember, remember what our point at the end was that uh, a lot of what we do in theology is put things together with a, we cobble together a number of texts and some of the implications of those texts. And sometimes if we've done it correctly, we can come up with conclusions that are just as true as a Bible statement, even though they are, you don't have a, you know, a ironclad proof text. And we've mentioned, for instance, the Trinity. Trinity yeah. And we want to be dogmatic about the Trinity, even though we don't have really good proof texts, uh, at least uh, giving us good definition of that, <coughs> that term. Okay, does that make sense? Questions, thoughts? I wonder if some people got thrown off by the term dogmatic there a little bit, because there is a sense in which we said there's uh, degrees of certainty. True. So though there's no verse to support pre-tribulationism, we hold to it in this church, but not as dogmatically as we do the Trinity. Right. Right. So you'd give us credit on the test? No. He was brutal when, yeah. when we were in seminary. There was, there's, there's, there was no mercy with yeah. him. Yeah. So. <laughs> so that would have been Bible verses, plural. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any questions on that? follow-up? Okay, we didn't get a whole lot done last time, so the questions were short and fairly simple this time, but hopefully we can make some good progress tonight. We've got a little extra time to work with, and uh, we saved some time on the quiz, too, so we've got a good hour to work with, uh, see how see how far we can get. We're talking about the relationships of systematic theology. We talked about the relationship first of Systematic theology and philosophy, and then systematic theology and exegesis, which are the topics of your quiz. Letter C here, and this is a this is a topic that's evolved dramatically, even in the few years that I've been, uh, you know, around seminary life. I guess I've been around a little few decades now, but it's it's amazing the changes that have gone on in this topic. Um, it's still a problem, but the problem has shifted a little bit uh, in uh, in the last several years. So let's see if we can talk about this, about biblical theology. Well, let's define it first, because um, I think that's part of, the, uh, part of the battle here. Biblical theology is a discipline which seeks to systematically trace the message of the whole canon and its various books of the Bible as given by the original authors within their own historical milieu. What I mean here is that we're just looking at specific books uh, within their historical context without necessarily any reference to the rest of the scriptures. Uh, so we're going through a book by book, author by author perhaps, and so sometimes you'll you'll see a you know the theology of Paul or the theology of Peter theology of John as though they had different theologies. Now, certainly there may have been different emphases that are made along the way, uh, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, they all had the same theology. They, they shared a theology, but biblical theology will allow, oftentimes, for discrepancies. 
uh, for uh, be- between the authors and the books. And they'll let them stand with sort of an appeal to mystery. Like, wow, isn't that interesting that they could say something different from another, one another and yet it be in the same inherent book? Um, and, well, you can, you, can, you can tell perhaps where that's going to go. I say here, biblical theology is descriptive discipline. It, just, it derives its rubric from the biblical material that it is treating. It'll never talk about the Trinity per se, because the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. So it won't, it won't actually use those kinds of, of, of language. <coughs> this contrasts with systematic theology, which prescribes summary categories based on an analysis of the whole of the text. So you'll, you know, systematic theology typically has these ten heads of theology, bibliology, theology, pneumatology, Christology, and so on and so forth. And and then we have categories within them. You know, we talk about the Trinity. Uh, we talk about the virgin birth. We talk about the millennium. We talk about pre-tribulationism. And, and these, these are categories and labels that we've assigned to different uh, aspects of theology, even though many of those terms don't actually appear in the scripture or those labels. Okay, So biblical theology would resist that. Biblical theology, I say, also is diachronic. What I mean by that is it is taking into account the flow of history. Okay, It deals with examining, I say here, and classifying inspired writings from a given period of time where a specific biblical author might treat the history and culture of that book, the dispensation in which the author lived, uh, the placement of that book within the historical stream of revelation. And so we're trying to figure out what this particular author may have known from what he wrote. Job didn't know, for instance, everything that Paul knew. Uh, and so there is some value to this. I'm, not, I, 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 I'm going to have a mixed review here of biblical theology. There is value in doing that. I think there's, we, we don't do that to our own discredit uh, because there are certain things that we don't know uh, in the Old Testament or from the Old Testament. I talk about Trinity. I'm not sure you can establish Trinity. I'm not even sure you can, uh, you know, argue for a plurality within the Godhead in the Old Testament, much less a trinity. Uh, but by the time you get to the New Testament, you've got enough, you've got enough material to put together uh, to, uh, to argue for a trinity. It doesn't mean that God wasn't trinity in the Old Testament, but the question is, did, did the biblical authors know it? And I'm not sure that they did. The emphasis in the Old Testament was on the unity of God. Okay, So it's so, so, so hopefully I've, I've tried to give it in, in an e- even-handed way, the description there. And, and we're going to give some, like I say, a mixed review. There's some value to biblical theology, but there's also some value to systematic theology, and I think they can inform each other uh, in, a, in a positive way. But I want to go through a history of this because biblical theology has had some strange you know, it has, has, has some strange chapters. And uh, not all of them have been as good as others. And uh, biblical theology is sort of all a rage right now. If you if you go into a, into a, well, I guess there aren't any bookstores. If you go to Amazon.com and, and look, look up theology, there's a lot of stuff on biblical theology. Not all of it's even, not all of it's of the same quality. And so let's see if we can't trace this whole idea of biblical theology. I say it starts, I mean, the idea of biblical theology really can start, can be traced back to the Protestant Reformation. Okay. Um, In brief, the Reformation was a call to restore the Bible to its place of authority. And so the theology they were building was a biblical theology and and not one that was built on the the councils and dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church that had been corrupted over the centuries. Okay, Their concern was to go back to the scriptures and build what we might call in very general terms a biblical theology. So if, if, that's, if, that's, if that's what we mean by biblical theology, I'm all for it. Okay, It's really just the whole idea of sola scriptura, scriptures alone. Okay. But it wasn't too long before biblical theology started to take something of a 
sinister <coughs> meaning. Uh, the term, actually, I say the idea begins with the, the Reformation, but the term doesn't actually show up until we get into the 17th century. In the uh, century, century and a half after the Protestant Reformation. And uh, what we have here, I've got some of the names here, W.J. Christman and J.P. Spainer. Uh, these are these are uh, these are folks from the free church movement in Europe uh, who found themselves displaced among the expressions of Protestant theology. They weren't Lutheran, they weren't Reformed, and so they, you know they had they were so Protestant, but they had some differences. So they were finding themselves without you know they were they were sort of a you know, they were a man without a denomination, if I can put it. And so they, these are these are folks who felt found themselves disenfranchised by these groups: the Lutheran group, the Reformed group, and so on and so forth. And they and they uh, and uh, in order to make a place for themselves, what they did was to claim they were biblicist. Okay, they they held to a biblical theology, and they. And they had nothing but evil things to say about, uh, say, you know, Reformed theology and their and their and their Belgic and Heidelberg and Westminster confessions and catechisms. These were these were these were leading the church astray with these. They were just basically doing the same thing Roman Roman Catholicism had done. They said, okay, and so we needed to avoid this, and we had to, we have to you have no creed. But the Bible it sounds very pious. It sounds very, very pious to say we, we don't, we don't, we don't believe any creeds. We don't have any systematic theologies. We just open up our Bibles and read. Okay, and, and in doing this, they're they're basically saying uh, you can't put it all together into a system of theology. And I think we we come with a with a certain uh, problem here. I think we have expressions of this kind of thing even today. Uh, like for instance, you ever ask somebody, are, "Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian?" And what's their answer? I don't follow any man. I'm a biblicist. Well, that sounds so very pious, but the fact is, you got to be one or the other. Well, I mean, there are other, you know, I mean, there's even further astray ideas, but you, you've got to be one or the other. You can't be somewhere in between. You can't be both. You can't be neither. You've got to make your pick, and and so the the idea of being a biblicist, I just believe what the Bible says. I don't listen to what Calvin says or Arminius says. Well, the fact is, we're not we're not saying that you should. What we're saying is that there are two historical categories: Calvinism and Arminianism. Which which circle are you in? You're you're in one or the other. Uh, you can't be in both, and you can't be in neither. Uh, and uh, the biblicist is someone who says, "I don't have to make that decision. I'll, I'll just believe what the Bible says, and I'll believe that God is sovereign and man is sovereign t- simultaneously." And wow, what a mystery that is! But that's impossible, right? Okay, it's impossible for both to be sovereign, right? So, and so, so we we've we've got expressions like this even today, okay? Although it was sort of uh, brought into it brought into its own here in the 17th century with these folks uh, who, who who just made their living by it. Okay, does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay, so that's a form of biblical theology, again, that you'll even see today. But then, it took even a more sinister turn. In 1787, there's a fellow by the name of J.P. Gobbler, who delivered a, an address at the University of Altdorf, and what he suggested in this in this inaugural address is that schools should develop a department of biblical theology in the university alongside the department of systematic theology. Okay, and so his 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 understanding on it. Now, Gobbler was a was a modernist, early modernist. Okay, so he, uh, so his understanding was that the Bible had a great number of errors in it. Okay, there was, n- and and while he was, he had some thoughts that the, the the whole thing could be harmonized together. 
at the end of the day, he didn't really care if it did. Okay, there were certain things that he couldn't harmonize. What one person said, one author said, with another, uh, perhaps even some things that the author said that couldn't possibly be true. You know, there, we know there's no such thing as a virgin birth, right? We know, we know there's no such thing as a resurrection. Those kinds of things don't don't happen. Okay, mm-hmm. and so. And so, so here, here is a, here is a, what we might call a modernist or a theological liberal, not a political liberal, but a theological liberal, uh, who is, uh, is free to admit that there might be errors within the Bible. And so, rather than trying to put it all together in one harmonious, inerrant whole, you would take book by book and say, this is what Job said. This is what Paul said. This is what James said. And they could conflict, and that's okay, because each one is his own man. Okay, and So biblical theology now takes a very sinister turn. In fact, I, I have a statement here by B.B. Warfield, uh, where he has nothing but criticism for the discipline. He says this, The discipline of biblical theology came to us wrapped in the swatting clothes of rationalism, was rocked in the cradle of Hegelian recasting of Christianity, and it did not present at first, therefore, a very engaging countenance. It seemed to have for a time its chief pleasure in setting the prophets and the apostles by the ears. Okay, So setting the, the, the parts of scripture in conflict with one another. And that's really what, in, that's the legacy of theological liberalism. It was really a savaging of, of the biblical text and its truth. So for Warfield and the early fundamentalists, biblical theology was a curse word. You know, it was, it was, it was bad. Okay. But then there was something of a, a renaissance here, a, a recovery of what I'll call here an evangelical variety of biblical theology. One of the first of these would be Gustav Erler, who was not a modernist. So he believed that there was a way of looking at the Bible, book by book, chronologically, and and charting the progress of Revelation without giving up the unity of the Bible. Uh, perhaps Gerhardus Voss might be a name that you might be familiar. Anybody familiar with that? He's another figure that's uh, at the old Princeton uh, worked together with Warfield back at the uh, turn of the cent- last century here, um, and uh, there was the f- he he was the first head of the Department of Biblical Theology there at Princeton. Warfield eventually gave in, even though he didn't like the idea of biblical theology. When he found out that this fellow Gerhardus Voss was going to be uh, uh, leading the department. He, he was okay with it because he, he trusted Voss would be able to look at the parts of the scripture separately without giving up on the whole. Okay. Now we, we also then have, uh, as we work our way through the 20th century, uh, other expressions, uh, and I'll put two out here from the, uh, from the 1950s, George Ladd and Alva J. McLean. They wrote competing biblical theologies both had kingdom as their theme uh, but they but they uh, but they actually did biblical theology tracing themes of scripture as they work their way as they work their way through progress and develop uh, to their conclusion at the end both both used the kingdom but they defined it quite differently from one another okay and so and so what was born here is this whole idea of an evangelical variety of of biblical theology that traces the whole the, the whole message of the Bible historically through the whole scripture. And there's some value in that. There is some value in that. Um, again, I don't think we should do that to the to the to the neglect of systematic theology, but there is some some value in in charting the progress of revelation as it, as it goes. Okay? I put down here letter E, another, yeah, I, perhaps I shouldn't even mention this one, it's a little bit more out there, perhaps. New orthodoxy was another response to liberalism, uh, but rather than uh, combating modernism by, uh, by, uh, by you, know, gr- gr- you know, digging one's heels on inerrancy, 
uh, what new orthodoxy, and we talked about that a couple of times ago here, was that we can talk about the uh, unity of the Bible in a in a in a in a in a very broad existential sense without without affirming that it's that it that it has a has a has has an errancy. Uh, the problem is uh, once once that happens, so biblical theology for them had it was a canonical theology it was a, a term that you might uh, hear from them. Um, so there was a there was a myth that sort of tied it all together. Just you know, if you if you think perhaps of a of a comparison, you might be the uh, uh, the, the the recorded myths of the of the of the Greeks. Remember, you know, there's all you know all those all the Homer and uh, writes about uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember Hercules and 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 and, and the various various gods and semi gods and halfway gods and all that. And you look at that and uh, you say, you know, that that can't be true. And there might even be conflict in the accounts of the, the gods. But that doesn't really matter because what it re- we have a sort of a warm fuzzy feeling about the uh, about the that set of myths. Uh, because you know, perhaps we grew up with the stories, uh, and it sort of explains uh, you know where that culture came from. Uh, there might be conflict, but that's okay. It's it's a whole canon. It's a whole it's a whole collection of myths uh, that we just sort of cobble together uh, to give us the story of the Greeks. Okay, um, and this is what happens uh, in New Orthodoxy. But the only problem was. When they actually sat down and started looking at the verses one by one, it didn't work. And so what they ended up doing was sort of reverting back to the uh, the modernist uh, approach of basically bludgeoning the scriptures. So that created a crisis, okay, uh, which had to be which had to be averted uh, along the way, and uh, and and it, and it was to some degree. But what I really want to bring our attention to, letter F here, is a modern revival of evangelical biblical theology, which really started in the 1990s, in the last decade or so, so the last 20 years or so. Uh, we've got these these figures, Walt Kaiser, Graham Goldsworthy, Steve Wellam, Ken Gentry, especially D.A. Carson. I think he's probably the uh, the brains behind the whole the whole idea. It's largely a revisitation of biblical theology in the spirit of letter D above, but with specific emphasis not on answering modernism, but postmodernism. Uh, however, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's a pure biblical theology at the end of the day. It's, uh, it's sometimes masquerades as biblical theology, but I think it's sort of a front for a system of theology that's you know, not where we are. That's 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 perhaps the tension. So it sounds really good that they're doing biblical theology. Um, I think they've seized perhaps on some of the wrong themes as the governing themes for the whole scripture. So that's sort of a a, a run through history of biblical theology here. Uh, but what I want to come away with is that there are two expressions of biblical theology that you might run into among evangelicals one is this idea uh, that you can you can look at the pieces of scripture without trying to harmonize them i think you mentioned last time that uh, this was for many years the approach at, at bob jones university also at dallas theological seminary uh, this, this was an approach that was there and there was a certain nobility associated with not trying to resolve the problems in scripture and uh, we're not we're not going there, you know. Uh, our our goal here is to harmonize what the scriptures say because they can be harmonized. We 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 do not we do not easily accede to what they call antinomy. Okay, there these these conflicts or disharmony uh, within the scripture. We try and resolve them uh, because they can be resolved. Okay, so that's one approach to biblical theology you sometimes see. Another is 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 the approach to biblical theology that uh, uh, that seizes on one theme of the scripture, for instance, the gospel or the kingdom, and then orders everything in the Bible in accordance with uh, some perhaps preconceived notions of of those of those topics, which 
Now, again, sounds very good. It's hard to undo uh, some of the errors that sometimes take place in that. Okay. Thoughts, questions on that? On, on what biblical theology is? Okay. There's some value in it, but there's also some problems with it, and I'd like to, to, to uh, put that in here. Contributions of biblical theology, first of all, to systematic theology. Why is biblical theology helpful? Well, it emphasizes, it emphasizes the authority of biblical revelation in evangelical expressions of biblical theology. And that's critical to, to systematic theology, the authority of the Bible. Since the Bible is the only legitimate, independent, self-validating source of theology, our systematic theology has to be biblical, first of all. Okay. And we will go to proof texts, whenever we can, to establish points of theology. Our, our, our theology has to be first biblical, and then we will build a system. The system can help us to understand pieces along the way, but we start with the Bible. Okay. So we start with a biblical theology. Critical theologies that denigrate the queenship of the Bible over other disciplines and supposed sources of the authority are flawed. Let God be true and every man a liar. Paul makes this statement in Romans 3, and I think it's a it's an important point. Okay, let God be true and every man a liar. And so, you know, if if I say something and you say, you know, I I just don't think that's what the Bible says, then say something. Okay, say something. It, it could be that I've missed something. It's, it's quite possible. It's a big book, right? Okay, it's possible that I've missed something, and uh, we need to we need to massage what's here in the notes, and we need to we, we need to we need to fix it. Uh, or, uh, barring that, perhaps what we need to do is explain how we can harmonize two texts that seem to say opposite things. Okay, so uh, whenever when it, I, I never I will never object to you saying but but doesn't John 3x say this I mean I welcome that anytime you want to ask that question I, I welcome it because the Bible is our source of authority so 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 you know ask those questions I I, I could perhaps have that uh, statement here uh, to the law and to the testimony. It's in uh, Isaiah 55. I should have it in here. Uh, but there's a, there a statement that's made. That there's these uh, these prophets that were, you know, speaking in the uh, in the in the in the period where Isaiah was, and they were and they were claiming to be prophets. And there was a question like, are these real prophets or are they false prophets? How do we know the difference? And the answer is to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have not the light of day. Okay, that's. I think I, I, it was written twenty six hundred years ago, but it's still applicable today. You know, to the law and to the testimonies. If I say something that is not according to the words of this law, then I haven't the light of day at that point. Okay, and you can disregard me. Okay. Uh, but, but give me a chance to explain myself before you, <laughs> before, you before you walk away. Okay. So so I think that's an important uh, uh, thing that uh, biblical theology brings. Uh, there, there, I, I have to say there, we we as Baptists. Well, I guess you're not Baptist here. You're you're a Bible church, right? But but you've got Brett Baptist polity, so we'll we'll, we'll call you all Baptists. We're still Baptists because we eat a lot. <laughs> but you'll. You'll, you look at the history of the Baptists, and they're not one of the major branches of the Reformation, right? You've got the Anglican branch, you've got the Lutheran branch, and you've got the, uh, the, the Reformed branch. So where are the Baptists? Where do the Baptists come in? Well, the Baptists sort of, for the most part, peel off of the Reformed Puritan group, but with some changes. The, the tension was that the Baptists didn't really have a forum for saying, hey, we disagree with point A, B, and C. We like the rest of what you're saying, but we don't, but we think, you know, for instance, we believe that infant baptism is wrong. But there was really no, no forum for them to lodge a grievance. 
And so what they end up being is a group that, you know, has has no has no place within, you know, sort of the European post-Reformation world. Okay. And so they sort of have to claw their claw their way out of the out of the wilderness there in order to be established. You know, and here's a here's a case where I think biblical theology uh, could have been helpful to them. You know, rather than saying, yeah, I know that's what the Westminster Confession says, but this is what the Bible says. You know, give us a hearing. But they didn't really have that that opportunity because there was a sense in which systematic theology had become a little bit too heavy-handed. And so we, we do need to be concerned about that, okay? Um, you know, and, and sometimes you need to stop me because I, you know, I've been building my systematic theology over the course of, of, of decades now. And so you might say, I, I, don't, I don't see the connection. And so we need to slow down and say, well, here's the connection. Or perhaps expose that there wasn't a connection after all, okay? Uh, so, so that's, that's the point. So the, the emphasis on the Bible as our source, our authority, is, is, is there. Secondly, in biblical theology, an emphasis on the content of biblical revelation is critical to a valid systematic theology. Okay? Again, as systems of theology become fixed, there is an increasing tendency for the system to begin norming exegesis and even to abandon a normal hermeneutic in order to save the system. Okay? The system becomes top-heavy. We've got to save the system, and so we'll do it at the expense of reading our Bibles. Okay, and so you know, we, for instance, we might we might come to the word baptize, and you know we're doing a translation, and rather than saying, um, you know, that word there, baptizo, means to immerse, uh, we say, let's just transliterate it because we don't like. We don't like the implications of that because we don't practice immersion. So let's just transliterate it, transliterate it into English, a, a Greek word into English, and make it baptize. Well, that, that's you know, there's an example here where systematic theology, uh, you know, actually said, no, we're not going to translate because it would it would jeopardize the system. Yeah, I was I was really disappointed when. Holman, you know, Broadman Holman, which is a Baptist publishing company, came out with their Broadman Christian, Holman Christian Standard Bible. I thought, okay, we finally going to have a chance here to see the word immerse in the Bible uh, <laughs> rather than baptize, but yeah, they didn't do it. <laughs> so I, I was disappointed in that. But uh, there, there's an example. The third theologian's first responsibility is let the scriptures speak for themselves. And there's also here in biblical theology an emphasis on the progress of biblical revelation. And that is critical to a valid systematic theology. And it's here perhaps that biblical theology has historically had its greatest value. God's revelation didn't come to man all at once, but progressively over the course of millennia. And viewing the Bible as a chronological document with stewardships of revelation helps us to see theology from below as an unfolding program without sacrificing the purposes and character of God. So uh, it's not a mistake that dispensationalists uh, have have often been big on biblical theology. Um, and perhaps you're, you're familiar with the the idea of dispensationalism versus covenant theology. Covenant theology is a is an approach to the Scripture that sees uh, the Bible as one grand unfolding of a single covenant that was that was uh, uh, that was crafted by God within the Trinity, the covenant of redemption in eternity past, and everything that we see is an unfolding of that one covenant. So that there's a great deal of continuity within the Bible. Okay, so you know everything has to do with the covenant of redemption in covenant theology. Uh, whereas dispensationalism came along and said, you know, there's a little bit more contour to what the Bible has to say. 
Um, and so we have a dispensation of the administration that takes place at the beginning, and then there's a second administration uh, in which God governs by his spirit. Now there's a third dispensation, you know, in, in which there is a there is a promise that's that's given. And so there's a there's a promised people now that emerges. And then after that happens, you know, we actually have a new group called the church. And the church and Israel and Adam's family are not the same thing, you know. Uh, whereas in covenant theology, it's all one group. It's the covenant people of God. Uh, dispensationalism, and with its emphasis on progress of revelation, sees iterations of progress within the outworking of God's program such that it, it isn't all saying the same thing. Okay. Well, what do they do with the with Hebrews when it says the Old Testament, you know, the Old Covenant is passing and the New Covenant is coming? How do they explain that away? Right, yeah. I mean, they, they, they do talk about the New Covenant, but, it's, but it's, it's really a, if I can say it, it's a recasting of the Old One. Um, you know, even, even the, uh, the, the uh, Covenant of Works and the Covenant of Grace, these are the two covenants that usually they start off with. There's a Covenant of Works made with Adam and God, um, and God tells Adam to do X, Y, Z. If you do these things, uh, then you'll live. You know, you'll you'll pass the uh, pass the test, and you know, the end times will begin. The, the eschatological age will begin. Well, man failed, and so God institutes another covenant called the covenant of grace, which says if you believe in the work of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, you can sort of get back in. Okay, But they wouldn't put it that way. I, I'm actually being a little bit unfair to them because they wouldn't put that that way. What they are saying is there's one covenant. Okay, The covenant is you have to obey in order to achieve eternal life. Okay, You didn't do it, so Jesus is going to do it for you. Okay, And so there's one covenant still now. You know, it's and, and and rather than seeing two covenants, sometimes it, it, it they they would they would actually correct you if they were they were sitting in a room here and the covenant theologians say no no no, there's one covenant, there's not two or three or five, but there but there are different, you know there's there's different uh, you know chapters of the one covenant of God. Sensations. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sensationalism <laughs> is relatively new on the. Like the Darby or yeah, at least as, as, in terms of a, in terms of a system of theology, yes, yeah. uh, probably eighteen thirties, eighteen thirties is when it really comes into its own. Of course, covenant theology starts in the sixteen hundreds, so it's you know in the in, in the in the big scheme of things, it's twice as old as dispensationalism, but only about you know twenty percent of the whole church age. So it's it's not it's not as though they've got a They've got a lock on, you know, lock on antiquity here, just because they're a little bit older. Okay? So we do need biblical theology. It's important for the progress of Revelation, the authority of Scripture, and then also the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the corrective of making sure that the, uh, the systems of theology don't sort of take over but there is also a need for systematic theology, and this is where I want to make sure we, uh, that's why we, we have a class here. The emphasis on the unity of the Bible and systematic theology is necessary to validate biblical theology, and that's what we're, that's what we really are, are looking for here. What does the whole Bible have to say about revelation, about God, about Christ, about the Spirit, about the Church? So on and so forth, and and what we and in doing that, we are looking at the whole and making sure that it's all harmonized and unified. Okay, as we noted above, the legitimacy of any system rests on two critical elements: correspondence and coherence. Correspondence meaning it is what the Bible says. There's your biblical theology. Okay, it's also coherence; it agrees with itself. 
Okay, and so that that's what we're looking for. We're trying to make sure that the whole Bible comes together as a coherent whole. So the claims of systematic theology have to correspond with the Bible, but also must cohere internally. This is most emphatically not to say that systematic theology is the Bible plus logic, implying that systematic theology contaminates the Bible. That's that's not true. There's a fellow uh, instructor that I know at a different school who uh, who uh, would would start his his uh, the, his his lecture on biblical <clears throat> systematic theology and say systematic theology equals the Bible plus logic. Okay, um, that's not what we're saying here. What we're trying to do is tease out the logic that is intrinsic to what the Bible has to say. I think what ends up happening sometimes is that people have a biblical theology that's the Bible minus logic, right? Okay, that we're not trying to see the connections that are there. Okay, and that's important that we do. And that's what systematic theology does for us. And then secondly, there's an emphasis on the historical continuity of the interpretation of Revelation in systematic theology that lends stability to the Bible. Uh, so the rejection of authoritarian systems of theology and the return to the scriptures has historically been a catalyst for reformation. We know that's true. However, there's also a tendency when we give up on systems of theology, that we end up exposed and vulnerable uh, to error. So just about, you know, right right when the Reformation takes place and there's a grand fixing of the, you know, the broken theology of Romanism, out came about 50 different heresies that hadn't been around for centuries. Because you know there there was some value that's there, there there was some good that that Romanism was doing, it was keeping certain heresies at bay, and saying these heresies are wrong. They're 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 you know they're they're uh, they don't have any place within in Christian theology, and they were right. Okay, and by saying let's get rid of the system, all those heresies sort of just sort of flooded the market again. Okay. And we find that that, that happens a lot. Uh, so, so even though we, we are, you know, we, we, we're very happy that the Reformation took place, uh, we recognize that when we undo systems of theology, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a doorway for heresies to come in. And that's, and it's been, uh, part and parcel of the history of, of the church. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay, so hopefully uh, you're, you're, you're catching the, uh, um, the connection between what the Bible has to say and what, we're, and what we're doing here as putting it together into coherent statements of summary of what the whole Bible has to say about, about given topics. Okay? That makes sense? So we're trying to do both. We're trying to do exegesis. You know, read the Bible, find out what it has to say. We're also trying to harmonize what's there. Okay? Our next section, then. Did you have anything you want to add there? I don't know if I was, I was just thinking um, if it would be helpful or not. So, where you might see this, I was thinking about books. Um, the way this is usually practiced is in the Old Testament when you do biblical theology, you tend to take periods. So you'll see a book on the theology of the Pentateuch. So a person will go through the Pentateuch and trace out a theme in the Pentateuch. But in the New Testament, it tends to be by authors. So you'll see a book on the theology of John, the theology of Paul, as you said, like that, and so forth. So what you gathered from Mark is that he looks a little askance at biblical theology. I do too. (laughs) Now, usually that was not the case. I'm, I was, I'm in the Department of New Testament. I feel it's New Testament. What you find in a lot of seminaries and a lot of schools is the New Testament Department, and these departments don't get along sometimes. <laughs> and people in the New Testament Department, they, they don't like systematic theology that much because they feel it's constricting on them. They want this freedom. Now, that to me, that the problem is it starts with liberalism. Remember, liberalism likes biblical theology because... 
We don't like dogmatic theology. We don't want, we don't want to be told there's a trinity. The Bible doesn't have a verse on the trinity, so we don't want to hold the trinity. That kind of thing. So, so evangelicals, in my opinion, have picked up on this in many cases because they don't want to be constrained maybe by some theological dogma, some things like that. And of course, I don't feel like that. But uh, I was going to say that we, we do see value in biblical theology. For instance, I was just I was trying to call up something here. So, and, you know, there's a value in seeing, for instance, like in the Gospel of John, if you study John's theology, John does not use the word repentance. So you could study John's doctrine of salvation, and he, 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 may, he may have different ways of expressing that concept, even though he doesn't use the word. So studying how an author speaks about a certain subject can be helpful sometimes. I was calling up something that I looked up in one of the classes I was teaching about Paul's use of the term saved. And when we use the term saved, if you looked in a systematic theology book, they would say the word saved is used in the past, present, and future. We commonly talk about we have been saved. We, it was, we, it's a past tense. If you look at Paul's language, he uses it he uses it in the past tense 12 times, but 12 times he uses it in the future. We hardly ever say, I'm going to be saved. We never say, hey, I, I will be saved. Paul does all the time. He does as many times as he uses the other tense. So there's value sometimes in that kind of study. That's biblical theology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Studying how an author uses terms. and so, so when I say I look askance at it and you look askance at it, we still see value there. But what we're concerned about is biblical theologians who use biblical theology to attack systematic as though you can't correlate these truck And in our circles, in our evangelical circles, some of our friends use it because they don't want to. Um, they don't want to be forced to say, "I believe in a certain doctrine." <laughs> well, the Bible doesn't really. I'm not going to correlate those truths, so I'm not going to believe in that. Am I making any sense there? Yeah, know. and I think I think a, a certain. Perhaps a practical point here for you too is if you're going to, and, and by virtue of the fact that you're in this class, you you have some aspirations for teaching, and for and and, and such within the church. So if you want to do, say, a study of, you know, the book of Second Peter, for instance, you can't just buy commentaries on Peter and work your way through it. Um, you know. Look up those passages in the indexes of systematic theologies because you'll find some of the overarching themes of the Bible and how they come together in a, in a, in a, in a, you, you don't want to just zone in on, home in on, on <clears throat> Second Peter and, and close your eyes to what the rest of the scriptures have to say because when you do that, sometimes you end up making mistakes along the way. Remember, like we said with, with James, if you're, you're going to go through James. And it says that Abraham was not justified by faith alone, but by works. Mm-hmm. And if you're not looking around, for instance, at Romans, <laughs> you might become very confused, and you might actually end up teaching something that's quite wrong, because you didn't take into account the rest of what the Bible has to say. And that's that's where systematic theology becomes so valuable. It brings the whole scripture to bear on your reading of the one book. That makes that make sense. So this is a virtuous circle yes. that we're in. Yes, so, it is. Uh, we want to give everybody here a grid, a systematic grid. But then, as you read scripture, you can refine that grid. I mean, I've changed my opinion, and Mark's changed his opinion about various things over the years because you read scripture. But you got to start somewhere. When you get saved, people tell you things and teach you things. They give you a systematic grid. You may not be knowing it. But they're really giving you a systematic grid that you have. And as you study scripture, as you hear sermons, you incorporate that into the grid. And that's what we're trying to do here is give you an overall grid. And then as you study scripture, you can refine and uh, develop that grid, that theological grid. Yeah, it happens, you know, the moment you got saved, perhaps, somebody somebody says to you, now you can't lose your salvation. Might, might, have, might have said it to you yeah. three minutes after you, 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 know, you said your prayer. And and what you did now is you've started building your systematic. You didn't call it that, 
<laughs> but you started build, building your systematic theology, and one of the points within your systematic theology is that you can't lose your salvation. And so then you start reading in your Bible, and you say, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of verses that seem to say that, but then there's a few that don't. Yeah, the few verses that seem to say something else. Well, now, now what we have to do is say, okay, either I'm doing my Bible reading wrong, or my system was wrong, one or the other. And so then, then you start doing the hard work of, of, of putting it together and hopefully you end up with a system that is, has, you know, it's a little bit more robust than it was before. Okay. So that, and that's, so it's a, again, it's a cycle that continues as you, as you work your way through. Okay. Okay. Next point there, next relation here of, systematic theology is that of systematic theology with historical theology, historical theology. Historical theology does not have any necessary or authoritarian claim on the development of systematic theology. Just because someone in history believes something does not mean I have to. Okay. The validity of any theological claim stands or falls not on its fidelity to any historical tradition, but it's fidelity to the word of God. That's the only legitimate, independent, self-validating source of systematic theology. Okay, uh, We know that historical expressions of theology have been terribly wrong. And we cannot fall into the trap of saying, even, you know, even as, as the suggest, you know, sometimes the suggestion is made, this is an older tradition, and so therefore it's right. Well, that doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, if we want to if we want to play that game, then Romanism wins every time, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> they because they better, they they were around for a very long time, and and they wrote wrote all the textbooks and all the theology books for 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 centuries. So if we're saying that older, you know, the historical somehow you know has has more weight, we'd be wrong. Why is history? Uh, why can't we necessarily trust history? Well, it's by very, by its very nature, descriptive and not prescriptive. It tells us what other Christians have believed, but it doesn't tell us what Christians should believe or must believe. And we also recognize here that history rarely gives us a unanimous witness. Quite frequently, the majority witness it supplies is in error. It's it's uh, it's often been said that you can prove almost any theological system from the church fathers you open up the church fathers and you you can selectively build almost any theological system you want to because there's it's not as though everybody in history believed the same thing uh so we always have you always have to take even even very ancient uh historical material from the church is not necessarily trustworthy uh Second century, second century, there was a huge problem with Gnosticism, basically a Platonic view of things that was just wrong, and it was a huge problem in second century. It was, it was, it was an ancient, venerable approach to, to theology, but it was dead wrong. Okay, nonetheless, you know, Gnosticism still rears its ugly head, not under that name, but all the time. However, you know, having said that recognizing that history is not normative, the annals of church history do contain a treasure trove for the systematician that he ignores to his own peril. What does it do? Well, first of all, church history supplies a network of theological witness upon upon which each successive generation adds. I say it's neither possible nor advantageous to strip away all historical influences in an attempt to recover the simplicity of a non-historical Christianity. It's the height of arrogance to imagine that you can rebuild in you know, a semester here at CBC a, a doctrine that took the church 400 years to build. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean we can't go through the steps that they took and, and try and... and rehash how they did it. But don't don't be so arrogant that you can imagine that you can in a few weeks do what the church had took four hundred years to do. Okay? We have to stand on their shoulders. Okay. Doesn't mean we can't check their work. 
At the same time, we don't have to start from scratch. We can build from what they've already done. We stand on their shoulders. As Richard Lentz notes, in banishing all mediators between the Bible and ourselves, we have let the scriptures be ensnared by a web of subjectivism. Having rejected the aid of the community of interpreters through the history of Christendom, we have not succeeded in returning to a primitive gospel. We have simply managed to plunge ourselves back to the biases of our own individual situations. What's he saying there? What, what, what does he mean by that? With a little bit of a mouthful. What's, what's he saying? Um, some, someone like, let's say, Calvin, he's mined this pretty well. Mm-hmm. And for us to start mining all over again in the dark, we can be lost. I mean, just right. make a mess of it. Yeah. And, and if, and if we get, and if we get rid of those, you know, those, you know, those figures along the way, these historical figures who've done a really good job, not a perfect job, but a really good job putting this systematic theology, if we just ignore them and start back with the fundamental pieces, we're going to, we're going to open up ourselves to a, a lot of, of errors that have been, you know, they've been soundly defeated throughout history, and yet they can come back because... You know, we are ignoring all of the historical work that has been done over the centuries. Um, and so I give some examples of that here. Church history informs us of the context for the development of specific doctrines and explains their specific importance and implications. The first one happens to be a very interesting one because it came up in a, I'm on a, on a, a web group. This came up this week. Uh, you know, fellow church nearby here uh, has someone who goes to their church and they have some sort of a, a port from their liver because of some medical procedure they had. She wants, she wants to get baptized, but she can't be immersed. Okay, so what do we do? Okay, well, it's a, it's a thorny question. It's not an easy question. Um, and so, you know, a bunch of guys start throwing their opinions into the ring there, and some of them were better than others. Uh, one guy comes in and says, well, just, just, just sprinkle them. What's the big deal? And, uh, thankfully, the, the group had enough, <laughs> enough people in it to say, no, 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 you can't do that. Okay. Um, you know, you know, it, it is possible that, you know, you might make an exception for someone and say that that person doesn't have to be baptized. It's a little bit of a shaky thing to do. But don't use a false symbol, especially one that is freighted with so much error over the years. Okay? And if you're not aware of some of those errors, those historical problems where, with sprinkling or with believer's baptism... I mean, there's a sense in which you can point to the whole problem with Roman Catholicism and and, and put your finger on believers' baptism as the problem. How? how? Well, they started, you know, really the, the, the collapse of, of, of Roman theology took place when they started making Christianity the state religion and obliging and requiring their their the conquered peoples to adopt Christianity, and so they start baptizing people willy nilly in order to in order to swell the ranks of the church, and they bring in all kinds of problems into the church. Now, Roman Catholicism is is a syncretistic religion made up with of pieces of a whole bunch of pagan religions all sort of jumbled together. Uh, with a with a sort of a Christian flavor, and it, it explains why we have so much problems in in Romanism. What do we point? What can we point? I mean, it's it's not like a, it's a complex problem. So I don't know. That we can only point to the problem of believers' baptism, but that's one of them. It's one of the critical issues. Same thing happened in Protestantism, right? There's a you know you're familiar with the story of Jonathan Edwards and the halfway covenant. You're familiar with that? Okay. Jonathan Edwards uh, was a congregational pastor, okay, not a Baptist pastor, but a congregational pastor. In other words, it was a it was a 
they had a congregational polity, uh, but they didn't hold to all the Baptist distinctives. Among and among those that they didn't hold to was believers' baptism. Okay, and so what ends up happening? So so people would be baptized into the church. Okay, uh, as infants, small children, and with the with the anticipation that at some point along the way. 12 or 14 or 16 or whatever, they would be confirmed. Okay, and so they were considered halfway members until they became all the way members, I guess you could say. But what ends up happening in the congregational church as a whole and in Jonathan Edwards' church specifically was that these halfway members never became all the way members. Nonetheless, they were members. And they become part of the decision-making body for the life of the church. Unbelievers, many of them unbelievers. Jonathan Edwards. I mean, this is this is a problem that Jonathan Edwards actually inherits from his grandfather, who had been the pastor pre- prior to him. After you know, Jonathan Edwards oversees the Great Awakening. You know, if there was a, if there was a, 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 a rock star pastor during that day, it was Jonathan Edwards. I mean. He was he was the one who's probably you know the the, the, the most well known name with the, with the Great Awakening, um, and so after this settles down, nineteen years later, he thinks he's got you know a <clears throat> finger on the pulse of his church and says we've got a problem in the organization of our church. We really need to have a regenerate church membership. Okay, we need we need to solve this problem in our church. And the next Sunday, he was voted out of member out out of the pastorate by by, by something like a ten to one margin. I mean, it was a it was a, it wasn't even close. Okay, why? Uh, unbelievers. Well, yes, but because they didn't get this thing about believers' baptism, right? Okay, and so we can we can perhaps say you know this believers' baptism. Is it really all that important? There's there's somebody who's coming to the church. They were sprinkled as a baby. They weren't baptized. They weren't. Yeah, we know there was a problem there, but does it doesn't really matter. Now they're good-hearted people. They got wet. They're saved. So why don't we just count that? They're in their infant baptism. And you know, if you're if you're not familiar with history, you might say, okay, yes. Yeah, it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal. And eventually it can be the unraveling of the whole church. Okay. And I've got some other things down there too. Millennial systems I have down here. Uh, you, you realize that uh, modernism, liberalism, theological liberalism, probably rides the horse of, of post-millennialism more than any other thing in order to, to, to establish itself. Uh, a couple of others there as well. I also say that church history alerts us to the re- cyclical nature of recurring heresies. There's a new perspective on Paul. It's all, all the rage right now. It's been you know, for a couple of decades now. But new perspective on Paul, basically the idea that Paul is, um, he's, he's not really as, as hard on the, on the, on the mosaic law as we tend to think of him. He actually was, you know, more positive towards the Mosaic Law than than we thought, and you know, so there's a lot of lot of intrigue and detail to it. Um, but as you look in history, you know, I was doing some reading for my dissertation. I was reading by about this fellow called Osiander, and it's a doc. It's, it's a it's a heresy called Osiandrianism, and you read about it, and you say, "This is the new perspective on Paul." Wait a minute. It's not new. <laughs> it's, it's something that's happened before. And I, you know, I, I, again, when I was doing some doctor work, I was reading this uh, uh, this this material. Uh, it was a debate between uh, uh, Andrew Fuller and a fellow by the name of Robert Sandeman. It took place back in the well. Of, it was about two hundred years ago. Okay, and I'm reading about this. Never heard of Robert Sandeman. It's kind of interesting. And I, I'm reading. It's like. Wait a minute! This Robert Sandeman is saying almost exactly what Zane Hodges is saying today. 
course, Zane Hodges is now dead, but this was 10 years ago. Okay. Now, Zane Hodges is coming on saying that you don't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ to be saved. All you need to do is believe. And so he's, he's advocating for this easy believism that doesn't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. And there's this fellow, Robert Sandeman, who was saying the exact same thing 200 years ago. But because we don't keep up with history, we did it all over again. Uh, we, we tend to repeat uh, the errors because we're not familiar with history. So, so it's not possible or profitable for each generation to reconstruct its own theology from scratch, but each generation needs to critically verify the work of its forebearers to reaffirm and own the fundamentals of theology afresh. And if we don't do this, uh, we'll eventually uh, make the same mistakes all over again. So history does sprinkle its way into into our study here. I've always, I've, I'm always keen on, the, on history because history, history tends to repeat over and over again. Uh, and to be familiar with it, I think, is to be a good theologian. Tom Nettles used to say, the best theologian is the best historian, the best historian is the best theologian. I think he's right. I think he's, he's got a point going there. So thoughts on that? Next time we'll come together and, and wrap up our, our, our opening section here on, uh, on the introduction to theology, and we'll talk a little bit about theological method, okay, so our approach to how we're going to do things, and then hopefully the following week we'll actually start into the doctrine of Scripture.